Can we talk something else? Can we talk about something else? Death by itself is hard to accept, but when it's forced upon you, forced against nature to happen at the will of a killer, it's surely impossible to yield to with any grace. The murdered, I'm certain, have always fought like hell when given the chance, only giving up as an attempt to take some control, playing dead in the hopes of opening an exit or clamming up to mute the pleasure of a sadist. The final moments of any murder must be incredibly intense. Angry, emotional, sad, I'm sure. At the end, more than anything pathetic on the part of a killer who would continue to brutalize a broken victim through their pleas for mercy, through their eventual silence even, their acceptance of death. Personally, as I get older, the thought of death becomes less terrifying and more reassuring, and only the road-weary know what I mean by that. But when you're young, man... Man, oh man, it's something you barely allow yourself to think about. I remember friends dying in high school and not being capable of processing it, coming down off of acid in my underwear, staring at my bare legs and feet on a sweaty summer night under the glove and orange lava lamp, and seeing those legs and feet as simply meat for the first time. Meat doomed to eventual rot. Realizing that it's all so fleeting, all so unnaturally posed to us as nothing to worry about, this life. Have a Big Mac, drink a Budweiser, watch some football, Carol Baskins. They can't fool me anymore. And that's maybe a weakness. Maybe that makes me more prone to accept it when it comes. Welcome it almost. Like finally. I knew you were coming, death. But the not knowing was a slow death in itself. That's a bad attitude, I've been told. As a kid, I know I would have fought any threat. Fought like there was no end. Like it just gets worse. And if I don't turn this tide somehow, the pain and terror will simply increase forever. Fight like a wildcat, they say. But if you could really see the way death comes down at times, you'd be more apt to say, fight like a 13-year-old boy. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 013. The Leg Thing. Baraboo, Wisconsin, a small town of around 10,000 people, is a weird little place to be. Old. Well, no older than any other spot, I guess, but the architecture, paired with the aura, the mood, let's say, feels weathered, worn out, in a bad way. Maybe there are ancient spirits here, as some claim. Spirits that had a disdain for the all-American carnival-style atmosphere of this place cast a sense that... Something is forever brooding, just beneath the reality of the present. Baraboo. The name itself sounds ominous. 
like something that should be whispered, is lorded over by a water tower. Its odd moniker announced in blood red, wrapped across a bulbous white background. Below runs the Baraboo and Wisconsin rivers. In the distance puddles a lake named Devil. Everywhere are trees, but occasionally there are jut breathtaking rock formations that make this part of the world feel alien. This is Ice Age Trail Country, a section of the Earth's face filled with beautiful scars that speak loudly the truth of how old, ancient, this organic mothership of ours is. But besides all of the breathtaking natural story we can read from the Baraboo Water Tower, the small city stamp below has an incredible history, all its own. This is the home of the Ringling Brothers, the birthplace of the American Circus. In town, you'll find the surely haunted Al Ringling Theater, one of America's very first so-called movie palaces built in 1915 that still operates today. Head down to Water Street and you'll be visiting the sprawling Circus World Museum, but not before having your neck strained by swiveling it constantly to soak up weird Wisconsin's strangest little offering, affectionately known locally as Bizarre Baraboo. A carnival spirit is in the air all through the glorious summertime in most towns or cities forced to hibernate through winter. But this, this is a small-town acid trip. It constantly exudes a sense that it's about to turn on you. To escape the summer madness, one might head east along the Y-33 in search of some respite, only to eventually drive over the legs of a man. They are painted on the road, these legs. Legs that belong to a prehistoric humanoid earthwork that bulges from the earth like the skin of a brand. The Man Mound was created over a millennium ago by late woodland peoples. Some believe the 214-foot depiction of a figure in a horned headdress to be an ancient burial ground. A sacred place destroyed at the knees by the 33 Highway. A disrespectful act that, maybe, put the hoodoo in the air out here. The Baraboo Hoodoo was particularly thick through the mid-90s. This is when two boys went missing, and another apparently lost his mind. Bertha Clark of Baraboo had adopted a baby boy back in the late 70s after having learned his, quote, doper mother had used all through her pregnancy and was giving her baby up. It was a challenge Bertha felt ready to take on, though she already had some kids of her own. These situations rarely wind up easy, and this was certainly the case. With the baby boy, she named Joe. Joe Clark showed signs of questionable decision-making all through adolescence. Lying, stealing, punctuated by more than one uneasy feeling by those who knew him best that something wasn't quite right with Joe. He showed a lack of ability to feel empathy appropriately, or to think before acting, resulting in at least one troubling incident where he called up a teacher, and uttered death threats. Joe Clark himself would later claim he was just a punk kid who enjoyed pranks and regular mischief on occasion. But admittedly, things became a little disturbing even by his own personal estimation of himself after a motorbike accident at the age of 15. Joe split his head open and was rushed to hospital where eventually he needed brain surgery. This left a large scythe-like scar above his right ear and caused all of the disturbing underlying pieces of Joe's personality to come flooding out unfiltered. Bertha Clark, Joe's biggest apologizer and first line of defense on any issue Joe, had to herself admit that it was at this time, in the summer of 93, 
that Joe started with the spooky. He would stare off into space as if tuned to some spectral frequency, then look around as if he were observing jerky movements in another dimension. He spoke to himself consistently and became disturbingly forgetful. He'd gap at it at times and not see himself at all, coming back to Earth soon after as if nothing strange were afoot. He was an unstable young man to say the least, and Bertha would later admit, after the incidents coming in the summers of 94 and 95, that, oh, whoa. I think there's something wrong, terribly wrong, with him. July 4th, 1994. 14-year-old Chris Steiner goes missing from his home in the night. Authorities suspect he was taken by force when they discover a torn screen above a first-floor window with a shoe print beneath it in the mud. Inside, they find muddy prints and are told by Christian's worried parents that their child wouldn't be the type to run away or sneak off in the night, that they are certain their boy had been taken and that the back patio door had been unlocked from inside leading them to believe that someone broke in, woke their son, and managed to keep him quiet through recognition or intimidation before hustling him out the door. Baraboo was turned upside down in the search, and finally, after six days of combing the forests, rivers, lakes, and endless little spots a freaky little town like this contains, a bloated corpse with braces is found caught up in a half-submerged tree, sprouting out from a small island on the Wisconsin River. Dental records confirm the worst for the Steiner family. The autopsy reveals Chris had drowned, and the boy is buried, without his story fully told. Baraboo chews on the mysterious incident for a full 13 months, before learning its true nature, and spitting it out in disgust. July 29th, 1995. 13-year-old Thad Phillips is passed out in front of the television, something he and his siblings often did only to find themselves magically in bed the next morning, a result of their father's tender technique and well-honed habit of carrying them off to their rooms after Friday night movie binges. Just past the stroke of twelve, Thad feels himself floating through the house and sleepily assumes he's on that sneaky late-night cradle train with the dad face. But when he looks up, he sees a stranger, a young man maybe 18 years old, hustling him out the front door and into the summer air. Thad asks what's happening and the young man with the scythe scar above his ear feeds Thad a story. Something about a party. Something about his car being broken down, so they need to run down the street to the house. Thad Phillips and his family are new residents of Baraboo. They don't know the customs. Thad is a 90-pound kid, less than five feet, in his PJs, suddenly on the silent street in front of his house at midnight, being told to run, being told a car is broken down. It's a crazy situation, but his young brain tells him that this must be something he doesn't understand entirely. So, not wanting to look foolish in front of the older, much larger boy, Thad shrugs and then runs. A mile down the road, the older boy comes to a trot and begins walking briskly across a weed-infested lawn towards a shabby-looking cottage-style home. Thad is now wide awake and a little more familiar with his impromptu chaperone. The older boy's name is Joe, and he has promised that Thad will have a great night. Joe even names some of Thad's new school buddies off, claiming they will soon arrive to the party. Thad is too flustered to ask many questions. He's a little kid, barely into his teens, 
Maybe this is the kind of stuff that teenagers do. Maybe this is going to be really cool. They enter the dark home, and Joe throws on some lights, all the while explaining that his mother has gone to nearby Portage to babysit his sister's kids for the weekend. So the house is all theirs. Would Thad like to come upstairs to his room and check out his model cars and train while they wait for his friends? Thad shrugs for the second time, sure. Why not? And follows Joe up the brownish-yellow carpeted stairs and into the most squalid bedroom he's ever seen. It's like a horror movie. A crack den, a drunken hobo's crash pad. There's garbage all over the floor and a filthy mattress lay slumped over a broken bed frame in the corner, much like the corpse of a bloated young body had last year about this time over a tree in the river or something. Suddenly, Thad is being manhandled and his disgust at the sight of the mattress turns to terror as he's dragged across the room and tossed onto it. Joe is so much stronger, but Thad fights like a wildcat, clawing and pounding at Joe's back in desperation as he's pinned by the bigger boy's ass on his torso, then screaming as his right ankle is swiftly twisted until it snaps. Joe lets out a satisfied groan at the wretched sound it makes and twists the disconnected foot a few more times for good measure before sliding off of Thad and holding his head as if in tremendous pain or perhaps ecstasy. Thad is in shock. He looks down at his broken ankle and is surprised to see his foot is still attached. It's bent at a sickening angle, but maybe still aligned well enough to help him limp out of this nightmare. Thad Phillips may have entered this shithole a meek little boy, but what has just happened to him has sped up his growth. He is at the peak of everything he could ever be capable of in this moment. A short list of decisions zips through his head as he is doused in adrenaline and kicked into survival mode. Does he beg? Does he simply sit here whimpering, waiting for what's next? Or does he... Run. Joe is too lost in the rhythm of whatever demon beats a victory drum in his warped mind. He's in a blackout, having one of those moments that made his family wary of him over the last year. When he looks up to some sound, maybe the rustle of garbage as his captive limps out of his bedroom, the spell breaks, and Joe snaps back. From wherever the snap of Thad's bone had sent him, Thad hobbles down the stairs, grimacing and helplessly yelping out as his splintered bones slip past one another and dig into his skin. The sensation is enough to make him feel faint, not from pain so much as from disbelief that something so dreadful, so disgusting even, could be happening to him. Every step on his right foot is agony, and the feel of his mashed ankle working to reconnect from its ruin makes his entire skeleton ache to know what's been done to a section of it. The 13-year-old is still surprisingly quick and has made it through the dimly lit living room and halfway through a kitchen, maybe stolen from the set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre by the looks of it. When Joe Clark finally catches him, slaps a chokehold on the much smaller boy from behind and begins dragging the poor kid back to a dilapidated couch, where he spins that around, pins him to the wall above said couch, and grabs hold of the boy's right leg, the same leg attached to a now dangling right foot. Joe Clark is furious. Whatever sadistic need that had been satisfied upstairs was now again ravenous, and he satiates it by forcing the boy's leg up over his shoulder until he feels the delicious snap of the femur. Thad Phillips sees a white light. It's as if someone has just taken his photograph in a dark room using one of those old flash powder bulbs, maybe stuffing it into his thigh after its certain explosive burst. Thad doesn't know all the names of bones like Joe does. Joe is obsessed with bones. 
He couldn't tell you the capital of, say, Wisconsin, but every little piece he may have heard crunch or snap in Thad's body to this point, he's aware of its name. It makes things more pleasurable for a pure sexual sadist to understand every drop of the pain their victim is experiencing. Thad can only think that his thigh has been snapped in half, flamingoed, and he allows Joe to delicately lay him on the couch, where again, Joe seems to slump beside him, lost in some pure rapture. Thad himself is now lost in some other world as well, a world of pain, too overwhelming for his mind to consciously bear. Mercifully, the boy soon blacks out. When Thad comes back to grim reality, Joe is calmly speaking to him. The TV is on. Some strange middle-of-the-night rerun flickers over his now-content face. Thad somehow endures the pain and manages to attempt to keep Joe calm. He gently asks why he likes hurting people. What's with all this shit you've been doing to my leg? Joe tells Thad the truth. That for some reason he thoroughly enjoys the sound, the sensation, the feel of breaking bones, particularly of the leg. Thad asks Joe why he doesn't just break his own leg, and Joe tells him that he's tried, but it's not the same. He can't get the angles right. Thad then asks if Joe has done this to anyone else, and because Joe Clark doesn't plan on ever releasing his captive, he shares something he's never shared with anyone else before. He speaks the name Christian Steiner. Thad knows of the boy from the river, and it's confirmed in his mind that he must escape this place. Talking will get him nowhere. He has to find a way, or he will die here. He keeps quiet, hoping that Joe is done for now and maybe will fall asleep. The pain, again, is too much, and before the opportunity to crawl out of this place following the finale to his captor's now drooping eye dance completes itself, Thad is swept away to hide from the overwhelming agony of his injuries in some dark compartment of his mind. Day eventually breaks, and when Joe stirs awake to its announcement, a thick cloth of luminescence that wraps itself warmly over his somehow serene brow, Thad calmly asks the dopey-looking 17-year-old if he can call his parents. Joe smacks his lips in the way that every idiot who's ever woken up seems to think is necessary, like Baloo from the Jungle Book, and stretches his arms out as far as they'll extend before plopping the thick weapons down across his slumped torso. Sure, kid. Why not? Thad dares to hope as Joe tosses him a receiver, but it's immediately clear that the thing is useless, disconnected, broken to boot. That look in Joe's eyes is back. That scary, hungry glint that seems to erupt into a thin black sheen across the lens as he approaches Thad. Thad fights as much as he can manage, beating on Joe's back as he's carried upstairs, over shoulder. Joe throws the boy on the mattress again and mounts him the same as he had before, his full weight on Thad's torso to keep him pinned, his back to the boy so he can focus entirely on his work. Thad again screams and claws at Joe, pounding on his back as he feels Joe grab hold of his remaining intact ankle. Joe grabs a pillow and orders Thad to scream into it, or he'll break his neck next. Thad complies, seeing no other option, and bites into the filthy sweat-stained material as Joe takes to twisting his left ankle until it snaps. He keeps twisting it until the skin bunches up and resists further torque. 
Joe slobbers and grunts in human exclamations of satisfaction as the bones bend and splinter then squeak even, like the sounds of green wood yielding. Finally, he is done, and when he lifts his weight from his victim, Thad looks down to see his left foot is on backwards. Thad can't be sure at this point of his torture, but it seems apparent that Joe has been furiously masturbating at times with his back turned, little bursts that he may want to keep hidden from the boy out of shame, perhaps. It has been 12 hours since he thought his father was carrying him off to bed, the longest 12 hours of Thad's short life. He is now alone in the room. Joe isn't concerned that he may escape, considering the condition of the boy's walking tools. Outside, Thad can hear Joe trying to start a car. Apparently that isn't going well. He can hear the monster swearing to himself at every failed attempt to turn the engine over. Joe returns at intervals to take out his frustrations on Thad, and the whole day becomes a blur for the boy. He retreats into his mind. He daydreams of his brother's birthday party that is to be on Sunday. Tomorrow? What day is it? How long have I... The car engine roars to life outside, and soon after Joe once again returns. Judging by the shadows of the room, hours have passed. Joe is doing something different. He's putting socks on Thad's legs. Long, shockingly clean tube socks that he's peeling from a pile of maybe a hundred pairs of the things. What the fuck is this all about? Who lives in what amounts to a glorified dumpster bin but keeps a stack of pristinely clean white socks on hand? Joe Clark does. He has brand new ace bandages too. He's making casts. Pretend casts, sure. But they'll do the trick. To Thad's renewed horror, Joe is attempting to set his brakes as he goes. He has no idea what the fuck he's doing, of course, but no matter, this is his fantasy, his party. And you can cry if you want to, kid, but this shit is happening. Finally, Joe Clark is satisfied. Thad looks down numbly at his legs and has to admit they look pretty good. Perfect seams. Almost exactly like Cass, or like hockey gear. Joe tugs at himself as he stares at the mock Cass, transfixed by his art and hauls Thad to his feet, brings him to the top of the stairs, and unceremoniously shoves the boy down them. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my... Little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. 
If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash dark topic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash dark topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. Let's talk about Murder Coffee Co. Murder Coffee Co. is a coffee company that supports Dark Topic. 911 Calls Podcast was actually created as a result of uh, being inspired by True Crime Podcast. Murder Coffee Company is known for its premium roasted flavored coffee. This is premium coffee, meaning that it's not roasted until after each order. I drink it all the time. The Murder Coffee Co. has a whole bunch of fun flavored coffees like Bloodbath, which is a decadent red velvet cake flavor. Uh, Soulless is coming, a ginger snap flavored coffee. (laughs) And uh, Turning Blue, which is, you guessed it, blueberry flavored coffee. It took me a long time to get on board with uh, grinding my own coffee beans. But now that I've got the grinder and, you know, I order these beans up, it feels like um, a ritual in the mornings. Kind of similar to maybe what a serial killer feels like when he's laying out his tools or a heroin addict when he's warming up the spoon. I enjoy grinding my own coffee. I enjoy this coffee so much I grind all over it the red velvet every morning. Murder Coffee Co. donates a portion of every sale to the National Center for Victims of Crime. So if you're like me and you're looking for a better way to start your day other than uh, cracking open a bottle of uh, hooch, head to MurderCoffeeCo.com and use promo code LUNA to get 10% off any order. That's MurderCoffeeCo.com, promo code LUNA. Thad Phillips comes to back on the mattress. The house is silent. The pain is unbearable, but becoming something familiar enough that Thad can work with, he can sense that Joe has left for some reason and knows that this may be his only chance. He drags himself off the mattress and back to the stairs. His legs beneath the socks are like boiling split sausages, but he doesn't dwell on the pain. There's no room for self-pity. If he hesitates, thinks too much, or at all at this point, he will surely die. Thad slowly drags himself down the carpeted staircase. He grips the brownish-yellow fabric as he descends. It feels like the fur on some mangy beast, but he's thankful for it. Without it, he'd surely go tumbling to the bottom again and maybe not be so lucky this time. When he reaches the dark living room, Thad passes out. Over the next hour or so, Thad will pass out countless times, but every time he wakes up, he's a little closer to the kitchen, and eventually he's made his way into a hiding spot near the filthy stove. But why is he hiding? He has to get at it. Voices. The front door opens, and Thad realizes why his last conscious spell had been spent scurrying to this somewhat hidden nook of the kitchen. Joe has brought someone home, a girl by the sounds of things. And as the television comes to life in the living room and the couple start kissing, Thad Phillips is again consumed by blackness. He's at the party. His family's all around. It's a sunny day. Sausages are splitting open and sizzling on the grill. A balloon pops and someone screams. Thad is screaming. Joe is screaming. Somehow he's back upstairs and Joe is kicking him awake. The girl is gone. How long has he been out for? Joe is jumping and landing on Thad's legs with the full force of his knees. On the younger boy's own, in fact. He's cannonballing, 
basically bombs the fucking way right onto his kneecaps. Something snaps. It's incredible to both boys that there's anything left to break. It's Thad's left kneecap upon inspection. It's turned completely around. Joe stares dumbly at the damage, then begins trying to reef the kneecap back around. Thad has some scream left in him after all, and once Joe is satisfied with the fix, he covers everything back up with sock and bandage, then outright masturbates over his work. It has been 30-odd hours since Thad was asleep in front of the television at home. Joe picks Thad up and brings him down to his own couch and turns on the tube. Deja vu. It's Sunday. Thad thinks. I'm missing the party. Though the only party his family will be having today is one focused on searching for their son, their brother. The day drifts by as if in a fever dream. Joe may have fed him something at some point. Can't recall. He's thirsty, though. Extremely dehydrated, in fact. His legs hurt. For some reason. Everything hurts. His pride, his soul, but not his resolve. Thad Phillips, 13 years old, just, is carried back upstairs, beaten on a little more, beaten off around a little more, then thrown into a closet and left to die. Joe Clark expects that when he returns, the boy can be dead. A fun thing to think about while out with friends this evening. That he has a broken little kid, fading away in his closet with those pristine white legs. Thad has been surviving this for 40-odd hours now. When he wakes up in the dark closet, he begins feeling for a way to open it, but it's either locked or jammed or some shit. He feels around for something and finds a thermos. He beats on the door with it, but it's useless. He wonders when someone other than Joe will return to the house. Doesn't he have parents, brothers, sisters? He does, but judging by their behavior later in court, when they will try to alibi for their complete piece of shit son, it's not clear if Thad would have been saved should any of them return in Thad's winning moments here. A doctor will later claim that Thad Phillips was hours away from death, two hours to be precise, a death of internal bleeding, when his hands found the neck of a heavy wooden guitar, and the boy summoned some kind of otherworldly strength superior to the black hoodoo Joe preferred to vibe off of, and smashed the fucking door down. And now he's climbing through a broken door like the anti-Jack Torrance. Here's Thaddy, and now he's crawling down the stairs again, and yes, he's passing out, and yes, he's grabbing on for dear life to that beastly fur on the tongue of the stairs leading to what should have been his tomb. Thad Phillips is on the floor. He's across the living room. The boy lays flat and broken and unconscious in the dark, dilapidated hovel a mile from his brother's phantom birthday party. But then he's up again, and now he's found a phone cord, and now he's smiling. The receiver has numbers on it. He can hear the dial tone. He can press the numbers. Nine, one, one. Here's a short piece of that call. It hits home to hear how small Thad's voice is. Is it with me, Thad? Yeah. Okay. Hey, we believe we know who the guy is. We got all the information. He's been in, in trouble before, so we think we got the right person anyway. Baraboo police arrive shortly after Thad's unlikely call for help and rescue the boy. He will endure countless surgeries and forever walk with a slight limp, but he survives and somehow makes it to say happy birthday to his brother that same Sunday. Investigators track Joe Clark down to a house where he's partying with friends. He acts stupid, not just because he is, but because he'll never fully admit to being aware of the enormity of what he did to at least two Baraboo boys. Christian Steiner's remains are exhumed soon after Joe's arrest, 
The original autopsy of 14-year-old Steiner had given no indication that his legs had been broken, but the autopsy also had not given indication that they hadn't. Notes on Steiner's legs read that there were no obvious breaks or fractures to them, but a waterlogged body bloats, as we all know. So, perhaps, beneath the swelling? Once exhumed, x-rays are taken, and it's found that Christian Steiner's legs have been broken, just like Thad's. We'll never know exactly how it all played out because Joe Clark's a dick, but it's likely that he broke the boy's legs down by the river and tossed him in and watched him drown. A jury will later find Joe, a.k.a. Bonebreaker Clark, guilty of Chris Steiner's murder. He is sentenced to life in prison, plus 50 years. Joe Clark entered pleas in no contest and innocent by reason of insanity in Thad's case to causing great bodily harm to a child, child enticement, attempted first-degree intentional homicide, mayhem, and mental harm to a child. A jury finds Clark to have been sane during the crimes and a judge sentences him to 100 years in prison. Thad Phillips later wins $21 million in damages from Joe Clark, but until Joe writes a book, he'll see none of it. Speaking of Joe writing, investigators would find some notes in his bedroom, along with an egregious number of white socks and ace bandages, not to mention a plywood board with a pentagram and the number 666 scrawled into it. The notes were determined to certainly have been in Joe's handwriting, and they came in the form of three disturbing lists. Their headings were as follows. Get to now. Or, as one investigator pointed out, get to know. As Joe was, is a total dumbass. I think it's get to know. Next, can wait. And finally, leg thing. Eighteen boys in total were listed beneath the headings, and to this day we do not know if there are more victims. I'll tell you what I know, though. I know that Baraboo, Wisconsin isn't just bizarre. It's downright disturbing. Call me crazy, call me late to dinner, call me whatever you want, but isn't it very fucking odd that on a road in a town where a young man had an inexplicable desire, obsession with breaking legs, then fitting pristine white socks over them like cast, that an ancient relic's legs have been destroyed here too, when a highway was run over them. And those legs were painted back on the road in bright white to make up for it. Why is there a 214-foot-long devil man laying on the ground in Baraboo, Wisconsin? The Man Mound, they call it. Look it up. And you tell me, it doesn't look like the kid you just had in your head for the last half an hour. Sands horns. Maybe those are Joe's. Did I just, like, no pun break this case? Did I? What are the fucking odds? There are no odds. And if there are, they are astronomical. Man Mound, Baraboo. One of five of this massive, ancient, humanoid burial ground shits that are known in North America, all found in Wisconsin, by the way, and a kid feels like breaking only legs, not wrists, not arms, not ribs, just legs. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Joe Clark cracked his head, and the hoodoo had a party. The hoodoo hanging over Baraboo from the destruction of an ancient burial site's legs. How do these things happen? Why is a 17-year-old kid suddenly sexually tuned to the sound of breaking leg bones in a small city of 10,000 with an ancient relic whose legs were destroyed that painted over like tube socks? 
shit, this is honestly my finest moment. And you're laughing at me or you're just rolling your eyes or you've shut it off. But I'm telling you, it'll never get better than this for me. Look it up. Man Mound. Baraboo. Small city. Wisconsin. Where else is a kid felt the need to break just legs and throw freaking socks in them and there is a 214 foot long thousand year old man mound it's an ancient burial ground that was destroyed by this sit by this little city i mean i sound like i got a man mound over the whole situation time to pull up pull up my own socks i guess all right hey no outro i'm a ghost this is the new dark topic i'm in i'm out I'm your book on a shelf. Thank you. Eyes cocked. Doors locked. Stay paranoid. Talk at you as soon as I can. Thank you. <laughs>